man, I'm not even me and B enemy. Me and Coach B enemy used to get after it like that. I honestly, he gets fired up, I get fired up. I just, I we just love playing this, man. From the Finley Toyota Studio, it's Cofield and Company on ESPN Las Vegas. Five o'clock hours here. Cofield hanging out in Fresno, getting ready for the running Rebels, tipping in three hours. A little later start. Uh, John, you like the late starts? Because I freaking love 7.30, and 8.30 oh, starts. Absolutely. That's why yesterday I was really looking forward to New Mexico, Nevada. Especially in my house, right? Where everybody generally kind of like goes off to bed at around 8 o'clock. So you get to just kind of like, I get to command the big TV. I get silence. I get to watch it in the dark. I get to, like an old man, doze off at halftime and set an alarm so I can wake up for the second half. It's brilliant. You heard Travis Kelsey on the way back as he was talking about <laughs> Eric Bieniemy in the past. Yes, they got fired up. Uh, I want to get a player's reaction about the uh, read bump by Kelsey in a couple minutes, but more important things first. Uh, Caleb, how are you, buddy? I'm doing fantastic. I'm, I'm feeling really good. I was I was with John in his um, soliloquy about why he likes late games as a father of a child. I, I, I can relate to the struggle of having to give up your, your big TV for Bluey or whatever nonsense and, and having watched the games on your iPad. Yep. Um, I was with you right up until you said uh, you doze off at halftime and set an alarm. That's new to me. I don't, I don't know if I'm that old yet. Um, that's not happened before, but in my I def- mean, we can agree. In my defense – Actually, you're in law enforcement, so maybe you do this too, and you're also a disciplined uh, former athlete. I do wake up at 4 a.m. So, like, when we're getting to, like, 9, 30, 10, I'm, you know, I, I got to catch up on something. You can you can catch me at EOS Fitness on Durango in 215 at 3.30 a.m. Right, we don't need to answer this question anymore. <laughs> he came over the top on you. As, as soon as John started going on a path, Caleb, I was like, uh, I don't think he's talking to the right yeah, guy. I mean, I, 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 uh, I prefaced it. I knew there was probably coming. I knew there was probably coming. He's like, I've caught like 20 criminals before you've woken up, so it's fine. <laughs> so, Caleb, I didn't mean to sound like uh, less than enthusiastic that you were coming on. It's the topic that we're going to open with here that – uh, just completely bums me out and should bum out everyone. So Kansas City Chiefs fans were planning a raucous celebratory day, and then someone's out there shooting at them. Hey, unfortunately, it has become those raucous celebratory moments of joy that have become the target of, of these villainous losers, really, is all I can say. Um, these moments where you're supposed to be having the most fun or having the most uh, enjoyment, uh, celebrations or concerts, or uh, these are becoming targets, places that are supposed to be for fun. I guess the, the most vulnerable people are the ones who are just looking to have a good time, right? Um, so I, I, it's sad. It's tragic that it keeps happening. Um, I'll, I'll first say from the law enforcement perspective, it is, it is um, in these moments, it is awesome to see first responders heading towards the sounds of gunfire as the civilians who are in harm's way are trying to get out of the way and to see that first line of defense getting in and I'm um, trying to minimize whatever the horrors are. Um, that's, that's awesome. It is, it's inspirational. Um, it's one of the things that inspired me to get into law enforcement, to see those kinds of responses. Um, so kudos to Kansas city and their uh, police force and law enforcement there. Um, also to some civilians who stepped up and, and, and jumped into action, put themselves at risk to, to try to help out um, as well as we saw some of the things unfold. Um, but it, it, it sucks that we have to do this, that we have to have these conversations. And, you know, I don't want to be political here because that's not my goal. I have my own views, and I'm sure everybody has theirs. Um, but the bottom line is um, our hearts have to be in the right place. And I just, you know, sending out thoughts and prayers 
but in what we can do and how we can honestly look our society in the mirror and, and fix the flaws, understand the realities we face, um, and make a, de- make a decision. We're at the crossroads of, of human liberty um, and government intervention here, which is not an easy topic. There's no one-size-fits-all answer. But I think uh, that's where we find ourselves. How, how responsible can we trust all of humanity to, be, humanity to be with the freedoms that we have in this country? And I think right now, if we're, if we're um, playing the parent role, I don't think uh, as a whole society has shown itself responsible enough uh, to enjoy these freedoms, um, like having firearms. So, I, I, I mean, it's time we come to that decision and really have a, a discussion about it that's not so politically charged. We're just trying to do the right thing as a society. Yeah, I, Caleb, how do you – like, we opened up and we talked about this when the show started, and I, I think I almost came across as, like, cold because we opened up, and my thought was, like, yeah, it, it happened again, and we'll do the same, like, around over and over again, right? People will say thoughts and prayers. We'll get angry. We'll send out heartfelt tweets nothing will happen and then we'll talk about this again when it happens in less than a month like how how do you think us with some sort of platform handle these things cuz i we i think we talked about it for like maybe 2 minutes at the top cuz i just i don't know what we're supposed to do it's just like talking into an echo chamber and nothing's going to come out of it i think the main thing we can do is try to make it a human conversation not a political one i think that's the most alarming thing about the numbness to these kinds of things for me is yep. how quickly it turns to politics and how quickly it turns to the republicans and the the NRA and all, all these other outside entities um, that we're trying to say, help us, govern us, do something. Um, and I think uh, it, we, lose, we have lost uh, the humanity about this um, type of thing. Uh, I think that's the first thing that I would like to project. I and mean, you, you guys, I'm, you have human moments when I listen to your show about these type of things. Where you kind of re, regress or reground ourselves around the humanity of these things. And um, like I said before, it's a people problem. I don't mean to say that, you know, guns aren't the issue. I just mean we are people who created guns who have the responsibility of dealing with them. So how do we deal with them? Do we need to have them removed from the table? I know when, my, when my daughter can't play well with others or when they're not sharing well at the kids' table, I take the toy away uh, because the, obviously you can't figure it out on your own. So my responsibility at some point is to remove whatever's causing the issue. And I think that's where guns fall right now in society. I don't have the answer to it, but that's the problem. It's clear. We can't. Um, do the things we want to do. We can't enjoy our freedoms without having these kind of, and it's not just guns that have that issue. There's other things in society that I think have gone rampant um, that are, that are plaguing our, our freedoms. Um, so I, we just have to have a human conversation about it. And I, I don't think we can be at each other's throats with political games and jargon and um, finger pointing. I think we really have to sit down at the table like adults and, and figure out what, what the best course of action is going forward. Well said, Caleb. One of the things when I was watching the parade was thinking, that has to be the best moment for the players, even more so than on the field. Just that celebration that you get with all of your fans surrounding you. You've won some big games. Did it feel better when you won the cannon in the moment after the game or when you got to come back to campus and paint it red with everybody around you? I think painting it red in that celebration was a little bit different emotionally-wise. There's a relief to it. There's, a, there's, a, there's an intensity on the field that you're still kind of adrenaline pumping from the game that you can't really match. Um, but um, I, will, I will say this about the Super Bowl. In any uh, championship parade, there's a sense of relief that comes with it that makes it even more enjoyable. I, and I think you could see it in certain ways. Like, obviously, Travis Kelsey being completely wasted isn't something that you can do during the season. right? Like, that celebration, that aspect of the celebration of letting loose and going to the club all day in Vegas and being that intoxicated, you know, a couple days after a game, you can't do that 
uh, with a regular victory during the season or even on the field, I guess. Um, so that kind of relief um, is kind of embodied in those championship parades. Um, and it's the most engaged I think you can be with a community. And I, so I, I do think that it's elevated to a different place, uh, which, again, makes this the tragedy that happened more sad because that is the, the moment of elation, the moment of relief. It's a very sobering fact to realize that there's shots fired and everybody's safety is at risk at that moment when, you, when you're on the highest of highs celebrating a, a, a world championship. Yes, I said a world championship for, for Noah Lyles. But um, when you're doing that and then you have to be brought back to reality so quickly, I, I think that joy should be unmatched for any Super Bowl winning champion, for any football player. That's the ultimate prize to win the Super Bowl. Caleb Herring is with us here on Cofield and Company, former UNLV quarterback. On the game, some reactions to the Super Bowl and Kansas City winning another championship and San Fran going down in flames. Uh, first of all, are you mad at Travis Kelsey for being a D and uh, bumping and almost knocking over the rotund Andy Reid? I am. I am. I, I don't think any coach should be showed up like that by a player. I think Ooh. what you. I, I would say a quarterback shouldn't be like if you're a player and you, you show up your quarterback. It's, it's one thing. Then you show up a head coach. Uh, it's another thing. It's a, that's a way bigger deal to me. Then you show up Andy Reid. It's not like this is some bum of a coach. This is a coach that's in the discussion for the greatest NFL coach of all time. Uh, he's in the he's in that discussion. He's made you a Hall of Fame tight end. Uh, let's let's be clear about that. To disrespect him, I, I want to say this was in the first half uh, by by encroaching on his space, demonstrably yelling at him that way. And I'm not, not so much the push because the shove kind of I, I would call it incidental contact. Uh, Andy Reid's 60 years old or however old he is, so and he's going to get knocked out down. So I'm, it's not so much that he put he shoved him; it's just the demonstrative nature of him yelling at him as if Andy Reid doesn't know what he's doing, right? Like uh, you're you're demeaning the position of head coach when you behave like that um, on a stage like the Super Bowl. Emotions be damned. I, I, the emotions are an excuse that you know people who don't have control of their emotions use to validate their behavior. That's all I would say about. Anybody saying Travis Kelsey's emotions got the best of him? No, garbage. Because it's not the emotions when it comes to other players. And I'm not that guy, and you guys know I'm not that guy to make the race line here. But obviously, our culture, our society would definitely draw a line and make a difference between Antonio Brown doing that, um, or or you know Tio, or any of the other names that have been locker room cancers, quote unquote locker room cancers. Um, but, you know, Travis Kelsey gets sort of a pass. I, I don't buy it. I think it's garbage. I think he's still a good player. I think he's great. I think he figured it out. He settled down. But that moment was not a good one, and I, I don't really have um, the tolerance to make an excuse for a player showing up a, a brilliant head coach like Andy Reid like that in the Super Bowl. Is there a difference in what Travis Kelsey did compared to what Patrick Mahomes did to Rishi Rice when he was caught on the sidelines yelling at him as they left the field after a drive? Uh, just talking about Patrick Mahomes yelling at Rice? Yeah. Yeah, I don't think – I think there is a difference I, because I think a quarterback is in the position of a coach. and I, 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 It's hard to draw the line between players, but I think there's a hierarchy on every good football team. There's players, there's the quarterback, and then there's a coach. I think the quarterback having that kind of command – I don't know what was said. I don't know how he was yelling. I don't know the words. But I don't think it's abnormal for a quarterback to yell or get into a player – especially if there's a mistake that happened. Again, I don't know the details of what happened, but that's expected. I, just like a coach can yell at a player. That's the, that's the way the hierarchy should flow. When it goes the other way, it's, dare I say, insubordination. Like, you, you can't disrupt the flow of things because that's when attention starts. If a coach is yelling at a player, if a quarterback's 
yelling at one of his skill guys. I think there's a little bit of a difference there that I can power, that I can accept, and that I understand as a part of the game. Uh, but it shouldn't the, the water shouldn't run uphill. That that's something red flag should be gone. I think that's what Kelsey was doing. And from his position as a tight end, he doesn't have the 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 right or the authority to be challenging a head coach like that on the sideline. When it comes to Travis Kelsey, the the clip that we played coming back from break, where he says him and Coach B Enemy used to do this all the time. Do you think that that shows the importance to to an Eric B Enemy, where he even talked to the team before the AFC Championship, where maybe you need that coach who, on the outside, people say, oh, he's a little rough with the players, he's a little mean, but maybe you need that guy so he can be the one that you voice your frustrations to instead of the head coach. No, I think that would be more of a narrative to why B Enemy isn't a head coach right now. I think there's certain lines that you shouldn't be able or willing to cross with the leader of the team. I think the head coach has to have the utmost authority. And the fact that you feel that like he can challenge a coach like that or that it was commonplace even to challenge the enemy, I don't think that that's acceptable. I know we had a situation last year or a couple years ago when Patrick Mahomes and the enemy got into it on the sideline, and it was uncomfortable. It was, it, was, it, it, it was the same kind of feeling where it's like, why is he demonstrably showing up the enemy like that? I think a consistent dose of that is, is an indication to me as an, as an owner, as a general manager, that maybe the leadership qualities aren't there from this person, that the players feel that they can go at him this way. I don't know that I would want that to be a regular occurrence. So I don't, I don't know that it's complimentary of the enemy to say, as Travis Kelsey, as scapegoating his own behavior, oh, this is what I used to do with the enemy all the time. I think he, he essentially just threw the enemy under the bus and you know got all these outside experts wondering why the enemy isn't a head coach. I think any other head coach, you could go across the board and say they would never tolerate a player consistently talking to them that way. And maybe that's an indication why the enemy's not a head coach right now. So I, I, I still I, I stand by the fact that I think there has to be a hierarchy on the football team for things to operate smoothly. There has to be a guy in charge, a head coach, an Andy Reid, a Shanahan, who takes responsibility for everything, who gets credit for most of the things, and who also has the ultimate authority, who's the last voice to speak and the last thing that matters when it comes to making decisions. And if, if you as a player think that you can subvert that, that chain, then I think you have problems. Did Brock Purdy do enough to quiet the critics? I don't think he ever will. <laughs> I think, I think uh, <laughs> unfortunately, I, I, from my seat, he's been, you know, shut the critics up. He's, he deserves to be considered an elite quarterback in the NFL right now. I think what he did to one of the best defenses in the postseason uh, was phenomenal. He, he forced them to stop playing zone, which turned out to be uh, one of the, the things, the Achilles heels of this 49ers offense, which seems that play man. <laughs> Who knew? To defeat Shannon, all he had to do was throw some man concepts out there, and he wouldn't be able to figure it out. Um, but Or the receivers wouldn't be able to get open, which was one of our points before the game, Steve. The receivers had to get open. Um, but I think Purdy's performance, his composure on that stage, um, his execution in critical moments, the plays he made that were off schedule, um, you, you can't. He, there's three different drives that he got his team in position to, to take the lead, and he did it with uh, mediocre performances from Debo and I, I, mediocre being nice from Debo Samuel's and George Kittle. Like like outside of McCaffrey, who also had a cr- critical fumble, um, Purdy didn't have much help. He was going to others the whole time. Um, so I, I, Purdy's done enough in my book, even before the Super Bowl, to deserve to be mentioned in the elite game changer, game uh, manager, whatever you want to call him. I think he's a baller, and and he got the job done. He did enough to win against Patrick Mahomes. The, the, it took Patrick Mahomes to overtime in the Super Bowl. So I don't, I don't, I don't see any reason that anybody should be doubting Brock Purdy's ability anymore. Speaking of game managers, let me get your idea on this take. 
Yesterday, Adam Candy said that Patrick Mahomes was the ultimate game manager throughout the playoffs. Do you agree with that? 100%. And I, I think when Patrick Mahomes is in game manager mode, he's the best quarterback I've ever seen play. And, and him, the combination of him and Andy Reid together, uh, when Patrick Mahomes just manages the game and lets Andy Reid coach and lets the system do most of the work, makes the plays necessary, that's when he's the scariest. And if you look at his playoff career, really, it's when he buckles down and plays conservative game manager, quote-unquote game manager style football, that he has the most success. He's been down in the playoffs more than he's led uh, over his career. I mean, the, the first Super Bowl run, he trailed in every game leading to the Super Bowl and trailed in the Super Bowl. He's come back from 10-plus points in multiple Super Bowls now. So it, when he buckles in and realizes every possession matters, every throw counts, that's when he's at his best, when he throws the ball five yards or less. Uh, when he checks to a, 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 a running back swing because he sees a zero blitz coming. Um, and, you know, everybody heard the call on the Super Bowl. Dart, dart, dart. I've heard him make that call a, a, a hundred times before. Just listen to the broadcast. That's a running back uh, flare route to the out, uh, a man beater, basically. He, when he calls that and throws it five yards just to get the first down, when he takes off a run for a six or seven-yard scamper, nothing electric, nothing crazy about it, just running in a straight line, just completing the five-yard out, just completing the little, the little read routes to Travis Kelsey. That's when he's at his most dangerous. That's when I think he's at his best. The no-look passes are great, but you can't really build a house off of that. So I would agree, yes, he was 100% a game manager throughout most of the postseason, and that makes him elite. That makes him special. That makes him considered the GOAT. In my opinion, he is the greatest quarterback of all time. Um, and you can have the, the, the debate over most accomplished quarterback, but I think Patrick Mons is the, the most talented and most accomplished in one bundle quarterback we've seen. And I, I don't think anybody has uh, any quarrels with the fact that his abilities, I think, supersede what Tom Brady was able to do on the field. But game manager mode was what got them the Super Bowl. Game manager mode is really, when you look back at his playoff career, why he's been so great in the postseason. Caleb Herring, former UNLV quarterback, current UNLV broadcaster on Cofield and Company. I got about 90 seconds left. Did Tony Romo ruin the final call of the Super Bowl, and should he be fired? Oh, man, should he be fired is a tough one. I think some changes have to be made. I'll say that because I'll never advocate for firing somebody. But I think it's funny because the way the Super Bowl started, I thought he was so prepared. Like the pregame stuff that I was like, man, this is the most prepared I've ever seen. And the stats, the numbers, he's matching with the graphics. He's on point. And as the game sort of unfolded, he got into his flow um, and things were unfolding before him. He just kind of did the ramble thing. Um, and that last call was, was hard to listen to. As a broadcaster who's been there, uh, you're, you're excited in the moment. You want to get in. You want to jump in. I probably stepped on my play-by-play guy, Russ Langer, a couple times at the end of games myself. So I, I get the experience. But it's magnified times 10,000 when you're calling the Super Bowl. And I think when you have what could have been an iconic game-winning overtime touchdown pass by Patrick Mahomes and you step on that one, it just it hurts a lot more. And as CBS, which mm. was, had a great broadcast throughout, you, you – I think you have to look at the drawing board and, and make some consideration. They've tried to intervene, but I don't think it's working as, as well as they'd hoped when they signed into a 10-year deal. I got to jump in here. I thought the call <laughs> was fine. I believe that in this era that the color analysts, if they are qualified at the highest level, are actually the stars of the broadcast. Jim Nance used a stupid line about a jackpot and then stopped talking and opened the door. And here's the other one. I'll tell you right now, if Nance – went to management and complained about Tony Romo jumping on him, Nance should be fired today. And here's why. We all remember the highlight of Kevin Harlan 
making yeah. a big call in a basketball game, and he's working yeah. with Van Gundy, who hasn't broadcasted much. And what did Harlan do? He took control of the situation, put his arms out like, shut the F up. If Jim Nance, all these years as a lead announcer, a Hall of Famer, can't tell Tony Romo minutes before the end of the game, more importantly, before the game, do not step on me at the end of the game, then that's on Nance, Caleb. Communicate. I, I, I see where you're going with that. I'll have two counterpoints quickly. One, who really has the power in that booth when you're paying Tony Romo what you're paying him? Now, I don't know Nance's numbers, but I know Tony's, and they're ridiculous. Who really does the network support when it comes to that voice and who can have command of the booth? That's the first. Number two, I would agree that the space was there and empty for Romo to jump in. But the fact that Romo jumped in with uh, what I would consider unnecessary explanation and that took away from the emotions at the moment, that's why I would critique that, that stepping in as critically as I would. He jumped in trying to explain the play and use his expertise of football instead of just using his expertise of reading the moment, reading the room, and just starting the celebration. I think that would be the distinctive number for me. I, I think Nance doesn't have the power that we think he has as the lead, quote-unquote, lead guy. Uh, and then Tony Romo's, at that, that moment, I think what he was trying to do was explain Andy Reid's brilliant play calling when I don't think the fans were ready for it in that moment. I think we wanted to hear the crowd react. We wanted to hear celebration. We wanted the corny one-liner, right, the jackpot. We, want, we wanted something memorable. Maybe it, was, maybe it fell flat with him. But we wanted that moment to just let the celebration start. Go to the replay to, to break it down. I think Tony jumped in with a breakdown of the play, which kind of took the emotions out of the moment for me, personally watching it. So that would just be my counter to that. But I, I hear your point, though, Steve. I hear your point. I mean, Roma wasn't the worst color guy on the broadcast on Sunday. Patrick Starr was awful. And he kept jumping all over SpongeBob. <laughs> he kept cutting him off. He wouldn't let him get a line out. You want to talk about bad color commentary? You watch Patrick Starr call the Super Bowl. It was it was an abomination. That is epic. Yes, I I did not tune into the Nick cast, the Nick what is it called, the Nickelodeon cast of the broadcast. But I can imagine Patrick Starr being unbearable during a football game. All right, Caleb. Good stuff. We'll see you. All right, guys. Take care. Damon, I know you have more to say on this. We're going to bring in Arash Markazi next. Arash, I'm sure, has something to say on it. But, uh, yeah, man, you got to take control of the booth. I love Romo. I don't get all the hatred. And it, what drives me the most nuts is you have little twerps who've never broadcasted, who have about five minutes doing podcasts that they're dreadful at, leading the charge against Tony Romo. Who are you people? Now, back to Cofield and Company in the Finley Toyota Studio on ESPN Las Vegas. So, Rosh Markazi was all over town. You could see all the pictures, the videos during Super Bowl 58 week around Las Vegas. A lot to get to, his reaction. Arash, though, I wanted to get into something that uh, John and I feel really strongly about. And there was a tweet the other day by Mike McCarthy, who we actually had on the show. He's from Front Office Sports. We had him on last week. And he said uh, there's one powerful business group that does not want the Super Bowl back in Vegas. Casino operators claiming that uh, gambling whales valued by casinos uh, did not show up. I've asked around town. I haven't heard anyone who agrees with Mike McCarthy on this. What's your take on the Super Bowl is potentially bad for Las Vegas? 
I was surprised to see that as well, uh, mainly because when you talk about the number of, uh, you know, private planes that uh, flew in for the game and the number of whales, I mean, you, you, you know, have to be a whale basically to afford, you know, a $10,000 ticket to go to the Super Bowl, to fly a private jet. Um, so, I mean, uh, I, I, I think there was a number of whales in town who would uh, gamble. I think the best people watching of the week was actually like at the win where the number of uh, league executives, Jerry Jones was there and uh, Arthur Blank was there. And so I... Um, have not heard that. So I, I don't know where he got that from or what casino um, uh, person contacted him. I mean, I mean, listen, Mike McCarthy is very good at his job, so I, I don't doubt he heard that from someone. But that is not something that, that I've personally heard. John, you thought this was poorly sourced. I mean, I think so. It just, it, when I read it, it just smacks like – and, again, I, you know, we got to talk to him down at Radio Row. And so, you know, I don't think, like, he is a you – know, bad at his job, but when I read that, it sounded like you talked to maybe one person, and, and maybe that person wasn't around uh, the right people to talk to, because Arash, uh, even outside of just attracting whales, you're getting people in your casino, they're staying there, they're spending money, uh, they're doing all sorts of things, you know, to to just whittle this down to, oh, they're not playing enough blackjack, or they're not doing the things that we need them to do, there's a lot of different ways casinos can make money, and, I, and I, that's why I feel like it's poorly sourced. It, it completely eliminates the aspect of spending in other places in casinos. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's why I was so surprised to hear. I mean, again, I, I saw his tweet. I clicked on the story, and I read it, and because I, I know John and like John, like I didn't you know come after him or right. co-tweet or anything like that, but it was just it, – it didn't make sense. Um, it reminded me, and this is perhaps not, not the same, but again, you know, the like F1 experience, again, when you went around town, when you went to locations not called uh, the Wynn or Caesars, uh, a lot of places struggled. And there was immediate uh, pushback from a couple of reporters out there who said, oh, the the Wynn or the, like, the, the whales were in town and they gambled. And it's like, okay, like I, I think maybe, you know, a few properties did well, but like as a whole, that was not the case. And I, I think that was the big difference with the Super Bowl. There was nowhere you went around the strip or around town that didn't feel a part of the Super Bowl week. Again, when you go to the Sahara or like even the Strat and you go, I mean, like every property had something happening. Arash is with us from the Sporting Tribune. All right. We don't have to kiss the patootie of Vegas on everything. We know the city yes, has we some do. problems. We no, can improve on every event. From what you saw, Arash, getting around town covering the events, what do we need to improve on? You know, I'm always amazed by the video of a of a uh, you know jam packed strip on a Friday or on a Saturday. I mean, who is driving on the strip just generally on a Tuesday night? But I mean, so like I'm always surprised by that. So I saw the Albert Breer uh, tweet about uh, uh, traffic. I mean, listen, I, I don't want to you know brag about uh, knowing my way uh, like around town, but listen. Most of what was happening during the week was confined to the four-mile Las Vegas Strip, and that's, I think, why this is a beautiful event for the Strip. I've been to several Super Bowls. I've been very fortunate to cover a lot of them. When you have it in Los Angeles, and you guys know how much I love Los Angeles, 
you fly in, you stay in downtown, you got to go to the South Bay, you got to go to Santa Monica, you got to go this place, that place. It is hard to navigate. That's not the case in Vegas. So there's shortcuts, there's ways around town. You guys laugh at me. I love the monorail. You got to utilize the monorail for big events like that. Get on it. It's only $5, $1 if you're a local. Uh, it, it should not be that hard. Yeah, let's let's call it as it is. Albert Breer was being bougie, and he decided to call an Uber for like a mile and a half walk. All right, let's go. Get on your exactly. feet and go. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. That's that's what what I thought. I was made, it made no sense. Arash, I've got to ask you about the soup. No, I didn't. I, oh, it's my bad. My bad. I didn't know it was my turn. Excuse me. Excuse me. This is these are the things that people don't care about, but I'm fascinated to know. What was your problem with the upstairs bathroom at Allegiant? Wait, the upstairs bathroom at Allegiant? Yeah, you take a picture with a long line at the upstairs bathroom. Oh, no, 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 no. Bathroom. Yeah, well, no, no. Listen, listen. Uh, listen, I mean, and, uh, mm -hmm. if, if you're paying $10,000, then listen, when you got to go, you got to go. I get that. So there's no problem with it. But, you know, imagine uh, paying $10,000 uh, for a ticket and you got to go when you got to go and you miss uh, a walk-off uh, touchdown there. Again, that was not the case with me, but, um, you know, just kind of uh, what I try to do is I try to, you know, give fans a sense of what the crowd looks like, what the concession prices are, things like that. And during a very crucial moment of the game, walking around the concourse, uh, there was a long line. Again, you can watch the game on a small TV. But again, I, the, my first thought was, you know, imagine paying that much money for a ticket. And unfortunately, when you got to go, you're uh, watching this great moment happen on a very tiny TV as you wait to use the bathroom. If the game is that crucial, why are you out of your seat anyway? There we go. I agree. I but no, listen, no, no, no. some people, uh, <laughs> some people got to go. Listen, no. what you want? You know, what, 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 what are you gonna do? If, hey, if we're going to jump on Albert Breer, we're jumping on these fools that decide to go to the bathroom at the wrong time. You know no, what this is. No, you know no. what this is. You're all wrong on this one. The In a modern stadium, there should never be an issue with bathrooms. And upstairs at Allegiant, there's not enough bathrooms. They're not big enough. I've been out there before. Uh, and, again, I mean, to get in a Raiders game, it's going to be expensive to sit upstairs anyway. But to Rasha's point, now you're talking about people getting in for six and eight and ten thousand dollars. It's even more insulting. They need to fix the bathroom situation there. I have no idea what they're going to do, but that's not up to standard. That was what I thought, but hey, listen. I mean, I I I totally get it. Like like once you're in that line, you've committed to uh, waiting in that line, and you're just hoping that that's not the last play of the game. Unfortunately, for some people, they missed the last play of the game. This is why. The Los Angeles Clippers are the best-run franchise in Los Angeles. That's right. Right, Arash? Because let them know, what is that grand mecca, that palace, going to have when it opens up next year? Urinals. Lots of bathrooms, lots of urinals, lots of bathrooms, lots of urinals. I mean, Steve Ballmer uh, will lead every interview he does about the Intuit Dome, the $2 billion Intuit Dome, with the number of urinals at his new arena. That's right. They'd rather have your butt in the seat instead of on the seat. There you go. Arash Markazi is with us. Uh, Daman is back in the Finley Toyota studio. So is uh, Mr. Von Tobel. Let's close on this one. It's very important. Um, first of all, I don't know if you want to. I'm sure your uh, your significant other listens to the show. No, probably not. Um, 
Do you have something special planned for Valentine's Ooh. Day, or, or do you avoid it and do a dinner and something nice another day? No, so we are uh, planning to celebrate Valentine's Day tomorrow in nice, nice. Indianapolis. So we will be there for oh, the All-Star God. Weekend. So we are, um, she is at work, I'm doing work things. So we're, uh, you know, we uh, texted and FaceTimed together, but we will be together tomorrow. All right. John, you want to run by your scenario where you once again have a fun pass away from your wife, away from your kids. And I always feel like you come up with nothing and then you just wind up working more when they're away. Uh, correct. Uh, so Arash, my family uh, takes a biannual trip because my in-laws are out in uh, Central California. So my wife and my kids take a biannual trip out to Central California to go and visit them. I cannot make it because I work. So I get the next 10 days, well, starting on Friday, I get 10 consecutive days without wife and or children what should I do? Oh, wow. Listen, you, you, you got to, you know, you should have a list, right? I'm sure you do of things that you want to do, places that you want to go, people that you want to hang out with. I mean, yeah, I mean, that, that, that's, uh, that's going to be fun, right. JVD. You, you're going to have a, you, you're going to have a good time. I have, I have my list. I have my list. Oh, you do? Yep. It's uh, take edibles and play video games. There we go. Yeah, that, that's something. <laughs> yeah, that but you know what? It would be nice. Uh, and I've often thought of this, but uh, no one really likes me anymore. But it would be nice to look down a list maybe in your phone or on Facebook and find some people that you haven't contacted and go, you know what, I'm going to hang out with these three people on three different nights. How about that, John? Are you inferring that it's you? Because you go to lots, <laughs> no. you go to lots of different places, and I never get invited. So not, not, I mean, no. I don't it's know. also no, very no. high and mighty to think yeah. I haven't given this this disgusting person enough of my time. <laughs> it's also it's also very I mean. presumptuous <laughs> that I have three friends. Like that's also thanks for reminding me, Steve. Right. I've only got now, two. Ar- Arash, on this show, I try to do something nice, and these guys they just blow it up, man. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> All right, Arash, uh, we'll be looking for more stuff up on the Sporting Trib. So the, the schedule coming up for the next two, three weeks, what are the big events you got? Uh, next couple weeks, uh, what do we have? The All-Star Weekend is happening this weekend. We got two Lakers, two Clippers. We'll see um, how that goes. A little bit of a break here. And then, uh, listen, I'll be back uh, here for March Madness. I, I, listen, I, as much as I love the Super Bowl, there's nothing that I love in Las Vegas more than the first weekend of March Madness. And again, we have all the uh, conference tournaments before that. But uh, looking forward to next month here in Las Vegas. Thanks, Arash. We'll talk to you. Thanks. See you. Bye. Sporting Tribune, Arash Markazi on the way back. Justin Webster. Talk to him. The Rebel Guard. He's going to help us preview this matchup with the Rebels tonight in Fresno. Cofield and Company presents Grab Bag. Don't touch it. Don't even look at it. Only on ESPN Las Vegas. Stick your hand in there, Dave. Let's go into the grab bag to get you further ready for the UNLV game at Fresno State. I had a chance just the other day to uh, chat with Justin Webster, who is back sooner than we anticipated he hurt the ankle back in that Air Force game. And before he broke down the game of Deion Thomas and the scout against Fresno State, I was asking him about, hey, when you go down with an injury like that, you're a super senior, you're on the floor, you're in a lot of pain. What are you thinking at that moment? Like my career might be over. It was it was pretty bad. Like I couldn't put no weight on it um, for a couple of days for um, for a minute. So um, I just remember thinking like, um, you know, how long am I out for? Could this just be like a couple of weeks or something? And then, you know, they end up telling me that this could be a long process. Uh, I might miss the season and stuff like that. So, um, you know, just going back to that time, I was in the, I was in the, my mental state was, was, was really depressing. But um, obviously I was able to, you know, 
make it a make it a couple week process and be able to be back out here. So I'm feeling good. And I'm just ready to help this team win and you know whatever I need to do. You guys have in general been quick healers the last couple of years. Is there something extra you guys do to, to work on an ankle? Is something we don't know about in terms of technology? Um, I mean, it's something that the coaches let me do. I can't really discuss it unless they let me. But oh wow, um, okay. it's, it's something they it's something <laughs> right. they it's something they allow me to do that I can't really discuss. So. Let's shout out that, to them. Shout out to them for it, though. There we go. That's a post-career conversation. All right. <laughs> right, Webster, right. Justin Webster is uh, with us. All right, let's talk about New Mexico. Winning down there has got to be special. I think it's the best uh, road environment. Utah State's very good, too. San Diego State's loud. But, man, when the pit is going, it is freaking loud. So what did that feel like? Great, man. I think um, I told people, I said this year it was kind of different. You know, last week we went there, and we was down, you know, 10, 12 early, and it got loud quick. And, um, you know, playing against that crowd is tough because, you know, it feeds it feeds into all those guys. Um, this year, um, we kind of didn't let them get loud. You know, we, we started off with a 14-3 a run. You know, we kind of never let them get into a – never let the crowd get loud. So, um, that's, that I felt like that's what was the biggest, you know, biggest thing for us. How the ankle feel for you? You played five minutes. I know you were in there. It looked like, you know, potentially to shoot some free throws. Mm -hmm. How did it feel on the floor and then after? Oh, great, man. I'm feeling I have no pain, no pain whatsoever. I'm, I'm just, you know, like I said, um, they said I was supposed to potentially miss the rest of the season or not be back to the conference tournament. So for me, I was just happy to be out there regardless how many minutes I played and contribute, you know, in whatever way possible. So I felt great out there, though. Felt great before the game, during the game, and after the game. So Justin Webster's with us. So let's put on the, uh, I don't even know, I guess your whistle, right? Coach Webb, because you, you missed some games here, and, and I want to talk about what you saw uh, over time, but I want to concentrate on New Mexico. Uh, first of all, Deion Thomas at 6'1", six, 6'5". Six Where does this post-up game come from? Uh, it's, it's something that he's been able to do. Um, he showcases a little bit in practice early in the, early in the year. You know, kind of um, like all, like August, September, October, kind of there. But um, kind of, I mean, we hadn't done anything for him to get down there. But he was able to get down there and make some big-time shots. So that's what DJ does. He has a lot of stuff in his arsenal, and he was able to uh, showcase it. The crazy thing is you you see guards, you know, point guards who post up, but it's like Maldonado last year. Generally, right. it's a 6'4", 6'5", yeah, right. for a 6'1", got to do it. And I got to tell you, going back to the New Mexico game here, I remember there was a moment where Jalen House scored inside on Dion, and he did one of these. Did the two short? Mm -hmm. Oh boy! Right, he get it back. Right, boy, did he get it back? And DJ doesn't really show no emotion. DJ is just very level. He he stays, you know, at, at a certain level, and nobody can really make him go too high or too low. And that's what you gotta love about DJ. So the other thing we're seeing, and I think it's gonna change the scout for other teams with DJ, is that if you want to crowd him and overplay, like Jalen House is just he's a ball of energy, he's a whack job out there. If you overplay, man, he's he will he's gonna sucker you. Mm -hmm. And I think every team's now gotta be careful of that mm -hmm. because his blow by and then his change of speed. Yep. I think DJ Coach should showcase. I mean, um, you know, you could try to take him away as much as possible. You can try to uh, get up in him, but at the end of the day, DJ gonna be DJ. He's gonna make plays. He's gonna if you get up into him, he's gonna blow right by you and he's gonna make plays. And so that's what's special about DJ. One of the New Mexico players actually said, because um, they wouldn't bite on, hey, we couldn't keep up with UNLV physically, but they did say that you guys were right there with San Diego State, which that's a hell of a compliment. Right, that's a, that's a great compliment. Oh, my gosh. What do you think's changed through, you know, throughout the season? Because, like, early on you had some games where you, you had trouble keeping people. Yeah, I mean, Sam Mary's had, I don't know, 50 offensive rebounds. Oh, yeah. Physically, like, what's flipped the switch? Um, To be honest with you, I think the loss to Air Force really flipped their switch. I think we realized, like, hey, every game in this league is tough. 
and you got to come out and perform every game. And so um, I think losing that game and with me being hurt, people, I mean, I, I think the team was like, hey, we got to lock in a little bit more. You know, now we're losing, you know, our leader, um, somebody that, you know, brings um, a, a vocal point in everything that we do. And so, you know, I told those guys when I got hurt, I said, I told Key, Lou, DJ, all of them, I said, hey, you guys got to lead this team. You guys got to figure out ways to win. And as long as you guys play together for 40 minutes, I know you guys can figure it out. Yeah, we're one of the most talented teams in the league. I feel like we have a great deep bench with Brooklyn showcasing what he's able to do. Jackie going out there and scoring. And Carl, Carl being able to get in there and get big minutes, tip dunks and rebounds and stuff like that. So um, I think the Air Force game is what really brought us together, brought us tighter. And we've been able to go out there and just, you know, guard the ball well, rebound everything. Justin Webster's with us. Uh, so on the scout of Fresno, you already played him, and it was you know, only a couple of weeks ago. One, the job on Isaiah Hill I thought was tremendous. The best mm-hmm. you guys have probably ever played against him. So explain the, the principles with him of doing the right things on the pick and roll. Um, great playmaker. I mean, he's a fifth-year fifth year senior. Um, you know, you got to be solid, solid and sound on him. He, um, We got to treat him like those New Mexico guards, but he's smarter. Um, he's not going to take bad shots. Um, he's going to make the right play every single time. He, You know, that's just who he is. And that's why he's been able to burn us, you know, the last couple of years we've been here. And so um, well, that's just being solid, staying in front. Don't let him, you know, come off the pick and roll free. Always, always have a, you know, always be up to the touch and stuff like that. So as long as we do those, like the guys did the first game, I mean, well, we should expect a win. The other dangerous thing about uh, Fresno is on the perimeter, they've got two different sorts of guys. Mm-hmm. When Ducell's out there, he's going to look to shoot the three. I don't mm-hmm. know if you saw over the weekend, he had yep. seven. Yep. Seven of eight. Yep. He went three of ten against you guys. Yep. Yep. Hope surprised me. I mean, he was right up the road at, at Utah Tech. He's a guy who can shoot the three a little bit, but man, he gets downhill. Yeah. So I would yeah. assume recognition of who is on the perimeter. Exactly. Exactly. It's, it's basically, you know, with Ducey, we don't want no catching threes with him. No, no catch and shoot threes. We got to be aware of him at all costs. With Pope, it's kind of you got to play cat and mouse with him. Don't let him get anything free on the three point line, but also be aware that he wants to drive first. Big physical guard, he wants to drive. So as long as we, um, you know, have a, be smart and have knowledge of where the, where they both are at, we'll be all right. Justin Webster, last thing. So this is another one of those plays. You just went down to the pit, 15,000, screaming, yelling. Fresno, there's, there's no fans there. It's mm-hmm. not loud. Mm-hmm. Yet they thrive in that building against you guys over the years where they'll come in shooting like 29% of the team. They shoot 50%. Yep. Uh, they turn it into a rock fight as well. So how do you make sure that the energy stays up and you play like you, you just did at New Mexico or how you play here at the Thomas & Mack? Um, well, it's, it's all about our intent. You know, um, Coach talks about it every day. It's, it's our intent. You know, walking there with the edge. We have to walk in there and, and act like, you know, um, we got to act like it's 15,000 there. We all got to be tight. We got to be talking to each other. We got to be energized. We got to create our own energy. As long as we, you know, go out there, play with intent, be smart in everything that we do, listen to what the coaches have to say and execute the game plan, we'll go out there and, and you win the game. There he is, super senior, Justin Webster for the Rebels. All right, John, what do you think happens tonight? You know, I think I think that my faith, and it was never really shook, right? Like we talked about this immediately after the Air Force game, which was even after that loss, we still believed that this could be a team that could beat anybody in the Mountain West, and they have responded the way that that kind of a team does, which is rip off four wins, including a really big win on the road against the highest power-rated team, at least on their home court in New Mexico. Now, I think this is a natural letdown when you're going from road to road, and especially a I think we can call it like a rivalry-esque spot against New Mexico, a team they've played pretty well. But I think that I've seen enough here in the last four games that tells me that this team is capable of focusing in on the moment, especially after taking care of business the way that they have. I think they come in, they win, they threaten to cover. Ultimately, I think the number might be a little too high, but I think they win by margin tonight. Demon? 
There we go. I'm with JVT. I have my mic off there. But I've been saying it all season long. Top three team in the Mountain West. Run with them. I don't care if it's on the road. Uh, when you first said that, do you remember my response to UNLV as a top three team in the Mountain West? I do. Top three in talent? Uh, no, my response was, yeah, they can be, but they have to do what San Diego State and Boise generally do, and mm -hmm. that is don't lose to Air Force, don't lose to San Jose, don't lose to Fresno. Those teams get through those games at like 5-1 and one or 6-0. and oh. And the Rebels actually have responded, aside from that Air Force game, which yep. was a looks like an outlier right now. They've taken care of business, but uh, remember, here in Fresno, the Rebels have lost 5-7. of seven. Yep. Uh, they still have to go to Air Force, which is a house of horrors. So they got to win those games. You want to get to 11 or 12 wins, you can't lose bad games. And they've taken care of business recently, so that's a, a real good sign. Are we sure that everybody was at the team hotel? Did maybe they went out to the spaghetti factory? Fres <laughs> Fresno <laughs> can distract. There is a there is a spaghetti factory here. I'm very excited. And yep, there is one. By there the way, I, was, I got excited last night seeing it. Where's Boomer? Where's my guy? What happened? Where's the trouble? Where's the thing, Joe yep. Buck? What happened to my city? Nothing. Yep. And I got, I got freaking cold face drunk last night. I was walking the streets. I was walking down to a seven. I was, I was trouble, man. I was trouble. I had an open container on the streets in Fresno. I was looking over my shoulder the whole time to see if the, uh, in this case, the Clovis police were gonna freaking arrest me. All the trouble I can get in on the road, not in Vegas. To your point, John. All right, running rebel warm is coming up at seven thirty. Tip at eight. Thanks, guys.